want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 10. As Zach said, um, we'll be looking this morning at six words. Six words. So that shouldn't take us very long, right? We should be able to get through that pretty quickly. No, um, uh, we'll look at six very important words. But it's important to remember where we came from last week because these words don't come in a vacuum, but very much so in uh, the ground and foundation of what had come before. So last week we looked at John chapter 10 and we looked at the section in which our Lord talked about this great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That there are those that are Christ's sheep that God will by his power preserve to the end. That no one is able to snatch them out of the son's hand or out of the father's hand that no wolf, no false teacher, no false doctrine can ultimately pull God's people away, that he will preserve them to the end, that even though they will go through many trials and temptations, even falling into grievous sins, for even periods of time, God will preserve his sheep, he will renew their repentance as we saw last week, and that he will preserve and keep his people to the very end, to glory. And we saw these great truths, these great promises of Christ. They're not just statements in a vacuum, but they are the foundation of these promises of Christ. And as we come to these six words in John chapter 10, verse 30, we see some of the most important words for what we believe about not only the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, this great promise, but also what we believe about who God is in and of himself, his essence, his being. Who God is, what is the doctrine of the Trinity, this great glorious mystery about who God is, that he's one in three and three in one. We see these great mysteries of our faith. How can God be Trinity? How can the Son of God incarnate be God eternally, the Son of God begotten of the Father? And even though these mysteries are great to us, we see the need to affirm them and to believe them and understand them rightly because, as history tells us, the greatest errors in the church tend to be around these two things of the, the mystery of the Incarnation and the Trinity. And it's so important for us as Christians to understand who God is rightly and confess who God is rightly, not just so we can be kind of egg-headed and puffed up with knowledge, but so that we can worship God rightly and worship him for who he truly is. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, we're going to look at these six words in John chapter 10. I'm going to read a little bit of the context before. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take a look at these great truths. Let's begin at verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus answered them, the Jews that were questioning him. He said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scripture that you have given to us. As we read this morning from Psalm 19, the heavens declare your handiwork, the sky above proclaims your glory. You've given us creation that declares to us day in and day out, night in and night out, that you are God, infinite, eternal, glorious creator, sustainer of all things, and yet we need your special revelation, your holy and infallible word to see that you are not just the God, creator of all things, but you are triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that in the fullness of time, you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. So we pray this morning that as we look to your word and we look to the great truths of the faith that you would strengthen us by your spirit, that you would um, open the eyes of our hearts to see these great truths. And even though we cannot comprehend them fully, we can confess them and worship you who made us, sustains us, saves us, preserves us, and will keep us to the end. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We sang a great hymn this morning, Holy, Holy, Holy. In the last line in that great hymn are words that you're familiar with. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Almost every week we sing, after the catechism class, we sing the glory of Patrick, which is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. Every close of our service we sing the doxology, which is Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost is the Holy Spirit, if you haven't known that to this point. I think maybe somebody's out there thinking, who is the Holy Ghost? Is the fourth person? No, the Holy Ghost is an older way of talking about the Holy Spirit. Each week we, we confess, we sing, we pray these great truths. We read the Nicene Creed, we confess that together this morning. But I think that we can be honest with ourselves when we might think we do that, we sing, we confess, we pray, but what does that mean? What does it mean that God is one in three persons? Or maybe you have children that you've tried to teach some of these catechism questions to that. God is one. There is one God. There is only one God. And then the next question is, how many persons are there in God? And there's the answer is three, and some of your kids might be confused. Are there three gods? What does this mean that there are three persons in one God? How do we explain these things to our children? Maybe you have unbelieving friends or co-workers that didn't grow up in church. Maybe they have not been around the Word or the things of God. And so the Trinity, is that three gods? Is that What is that? Is that a logical contradiction? How can that be possible? It's important for us to understand what the Trinity is so that we can talk about these things with those that don't understand. But maybe most importantly this morning, above all those things is, what do we believe? <laughs> what do we mean when we say God is triune, that there is one God in three persons? How are we to understand the God that is revealed in Scripture, this doctrine of the Trinity? How are we to use the great creeds and confessions of the faith to articulate these things, to summarize them, to try to explain them? And how can we look to this glorious mystery of the triune God and not just try to understand it, not just confess it, but have it strengthen our worship and communion with God? That this is not just a doctrine that we can keep on the shelf 
but is actually profound in how we worship God, who is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at three things today as we look at John 30, and you can follow along with me on your outline if you would like. First, we're going to look at the context of John 30, because as I said, John 10, 30, because as I said, this does not happen in a vacuum. There's very much a context to these six words of our Lord, and ultimately we're going to look at the context of all the scripture, because we can't say something that contradicts with the rest of scripture, right? So we're going to look at the context. Next, we're going to look at the creeds and confessions, and a big seven-syllable word, consubstantiality. Don't worry, we'll get there. And then finally, we're going to look at how all of these great truths should give us confidence in God's promises. So first, we're going to look at the context of John 10.30. Jesus says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And as we read this morning, this comes as the foundation of what has come before it. Jesus has made a claim, a promise. He said, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And then he makes another claim that no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And he grounds this statement, this claim, in this truth. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Notice two things about this statement from our Lord. Really just notice two words. <laughs> the first one is notice the word one. One, describing the unity of the Father and the Son. And secondly, we'll look at that little word there, and, which denotes the distinction between the two. So first we're going to look at this idea of one. One, that I and the Father are one. What does this mean? Jesus here is claiming, he's making a statement that him and the Father are one. What does that mean? That's the question, right? What does that mean? What does it mean that I and the Father are one? One what? One, one thing? One in purpose? One in goal? In what way are the Father and the Son one? We don't see any qualifications. There's nothing that follows John chapter 10, verse 30. It's just, I and the Father are one. Full stop. What is our Lord saying here? One what? There's many different ways people have understood this passage. Many have said, oh, this is just one in purpose. This is just a one in purpose. They just want the same thing. He's saying, I and the Father, we just want the same thing. We have the same purpose. Others have said that this is simply, Jesus is simply saying that him and the Father are one in their goal. They just want one thing. They are working toward the same outcome. They simply desire the same thing. Maybe they're hoping for the same thing, but they are one in goal. But as we look at this passage, and as we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that there is something more profound being said in this statement. There's something more here than just one in purpose. There's more than that. We can say that the Father and the Son are not simply one in their goal or purpose, but this is a claim from our Lord that they are one in essence, in being, that they are one substance, not simply wanting the same thing or the same outcome, but have the same nature, the same substance. These are all words to talk about the oneness of God, what God is. Whatever the Father is, Jesus is saying, 
I am that. I and the Father are one, the same in substance and perfection and power. Jesus here is not making a statement about just having the same mission as the Father, that they have the same goal or end in mind, but he is also claiming to be one with the Father in his very being. I and the Father are one. Now this is kind of a little bit technical for us, right? What do you mean, one in being, one in essence, one in substance? What does this mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that the Son is one with the Father of the same substance? They are one. And maybe the best way to explain it is to explain what Jesus is not saying here, right? Because we have other statements in Scripture that talk about these two being one, right? In the very first couple chapters of the Bible, we see that God declares that in marriage between a man and a woman, that the two shall become one flesh. So is that what Jesus is saying? Is he just saying the two, the Father and the Son, are one in this kind of same way? And this this union of between two separate people, is that what our Lord is saying? That there's just this union between two separate people. People in the same way that my wife and I are one, right? He's just saying that we're working toward the same mind. We're of the same mind. We kind of we're working toward the same thing. Is that what our Lord is claiming? No. Our Lord is not simply claiming a unity of two separate people, but our Lord is claiming a unity of being. That I and the Father are one. One thing. One substance. One existence that this is a definitive claim of our Lord to be God. (laughs) To be God in and of himself. I and the Father are one. And this shouldn't surprise us as we've gone through John's Gospel, because what is the very first line in John's Gospel? In the beginning was the Word, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the reason that we know that this is a claim to deity and not simply a claim to being one in purpose is because of the very next verse. What does it say in verse 21? The Jews pick up stones to stone him. And we see later on that they say, it is not because of your works that we are going to stone you, but because you, being a man, make yourself God. They know what Jesus is saying. They know what he is claiming. He is not simply claiming to be one in purpose, but he is claiming to be God. And the reason they are trying to pick up stones and stone him, the reason they are picking up stones and stone him is because they know the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is very clear that there is one God. The rest of the morning is our confession of sin. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, the Lord is one. You go to Isaiah chapter 23, the Lord says, There is no God formed after you, neither shall there be one before There was not a God before me, and there shall be no God after me. I am the Lord. Well, the Old Testament is clear. There is one God. There is one God. And he's this is called the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. People would have repeated this multiple times per day. 
would remind themselves that there is only one God. So these Jews that are picking up stones to kill him are doing this, but because to blaspheme, claim to be God, is worthy of death, worthy of stoning. These Jews were committed monotheists. They believed in one simple and divine being. They were not like the pagans of the day that worshipped multiple gods. They worshipped one God, Yahweh. So when Jesus stands up and says, I and the Father are one, they are real. So, okay, where are we? <laughs> so, with all that to say, Jesus is claiming to be one with God. He's claiming to be God. He's not saying anything less than to be God. And so I think most of us, that's not a new claim for us. That's not necessarily difficult for us to stand while we can understand that these people would be confused and upset at this claim by our Lord. I think for most of us here, we're very familiar as we've gone through John's Gospel that Jesus claimed very regularly to be God. He says in John chapter 5, My Father is working, and I myself am working. He claims all the divine prerogatives. But what makes this passage that we see before us in John chapter 10 verse 30 so difficult and yet so profound is this one little word, and. Jesus says, I and the Father. Why is this difficult? Notice, Jesus didn't just say, the Father is one. He didn't just say, I am one. He said, I and the Father are one. We could say it like this. It's like Jesus is saying that the two are one. And if we looked at the rest of Scripture, we could say that the three are one. <laughs> and you might be thinking, what does this mean? How do we understand this? Isn't this a logical contradiction? Two, two different things can't be true in the same way at the same time. How can God be three in one and one in three? This word and is very important for how we understand what our Lord is saying. That Jesus here is not dividing the being or the essence of God, but distinguishing between the persons of God. Jesus here, with using this word and, is making a distinction between himself and the Father. That this little word here, and, distinguishes the persons that are in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we can say that each of the persons has the divine essence, yet the essence is undivided. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, right? That there are real distinctions between the persons, yet the three are one. This great, profound mystery. That the two are not separated. They are not two distinct beings, but that the two are one. So the question is, how do we understand this truth? How do we understand what the scripture teaches because you look at the Old Testament and it's very clear there is only one God. And yet when we come to the New Testament we see this revealed that there is, that the Son is to be worshipped as God. That the Spirit also is God, one with the Father and the Son. So how do we affirm that God is one and yet maintain that there are three persons in God? How do we do this? What is the solution to this seeming 
contradiction. And the answer is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. That there is one eternal, infinite, and divine being of God that simply is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we sang this morning, one God in three persons, blessed Trinity. But if you look closely at our passage, maybe you'll see that the word Trinity is not found there. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to be patronizing. But you look, the word Trinity is not there. It just says, I and the Father are one. How, Kindle, you just made, you just claimed a word, you just stated something that isn't found in the Bible. You can look through all 66 books in the Bible, you will not find the word Trinity anywhere in all of Holy Scripture. So am I claiming something, this word Trinity, that is not biblical? Am I claiming something that is not found in the Scriptures? Because the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. And in fact, this very passage, John 10.30, was used by heretics in the early church to in fact prove the opposite of the doctrine of the Trinity. It was used by those in the early church to seek to disprove the doctrine of the triune God. And that's why we come to our second point this morning, the use of creeds, confessions, and this word, consubstantiality. I kind of regret putting that in there, but hopefully you'll bear with me. We see that this very passage, John 10.30, I and the Father are one, was actually used by those in the early church, heretics, to try to undermine the doctrine of the Trinity and support their errant view of who God was. There was a man named Arius who came in the first couple hundred years of the church, and he would say things like, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's a very powerful being, he is very great and wise, he's the first and greatest creation of the Father, but he is not God. He is not God. He is not God in the same way that the Father is God. And so he would read this passage and say, well, I and the Father are one just means that we are one and they are one in purpose. They just want the same thing. The Father is greater. He created the Son, but the Father and the Son are one in purpose, but not in essence. And so this error was called Arianism, named after the man, or subordinationism. And so what happened is, in the early church, they got together and they said, that is not what we believe. <laughs> that is not what we believe about who God is or what the Bible teaches. And so very early on in the church, this, at this Council of Nicaea, which is where we get this name, the Nicene Creed, the church got together and said, we believe the Son is God. He's not just the first and greatest creation of God, he is a very and eternal God, to be worshipped with the Father and the Spirit in the same way. And so they came up with this phrase that we see in our, in our creed, if you want to turn there with me, in the Nicene Creed, it says, of the same essence as the Father, or of the same substance. In the Latin, this was translated as homoousia. Homo meaning same, usia meaning substance or essence, of the same 
essence or substance. Now that's all kind of technical, right? But it's very important because what they're saying is we don't believe in Arianism. We don't believe that they have different substances or different essences that what John 10.30 is saying is that I and the Father are one. One in essence. One in power. One in perfection. The Father and the Son are not two separate beings, but one very and eternal God. So this is where we get that big word. Consubstantiality. You want to impress someone? You can say that. Consubstantiality. Of the same substance. Of the same substance. One infinite and eternal God. So others came along, they tried to say that the Father and the Son, they look at John 10.30 and they say, well, when they sit, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's saying that they're really just the same person, that there is no distinction between the persons. The Father is just one mask of God, the Son is just another mask of God, and the Spirit is just another. That they are not really three persons in one God, but they are really just one person. And this was the, the heresy of what we call modalism, or the more technical term is Sabellianism, right? That this heresy denies that there are three persons in God, but merely that there is just one person with three different masks. But as we saw, and we see later on in the Athanasian Creed, they said, no, that's not what we believe, yet again. We believe the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. That there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Spirit, yet one God. And if, if you read that, the Athanasian Creed is beautiful because it just keeps saying, there is one power, one eternity, one infinite one, not three. That we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity, in unity. So we can say this, that the creeds and confessions of the Church when they use words like Trinity that are not found in the Bible, they are not seeking to undermine the authority of the Scripture, but they are in fact seeking to clarify, explain, and uphold the truths that are taught in the Word of God. And this is very important for us as we look at how we use and understand these creeds and confessions of the Church. That they are not inventing new doctrines, but they are seeking to make explicit what the church always believed. It wasn't like when the, the Nicene Creed was written or the Athanasian Creed was written. It was the church saying, hey, we got this new doctrine, check it out, the doctrine of the Trinity. It wasn't found in the Bible, but we made it up. No, it's saying, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. And it's only when these heresies rose up that they were able to say, that is definitely not what we believe. <laughs> we believe that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, yet there is only one infinite and eternal God. And so this doctrine of the Trinity is not a man-made invention, but is the glorious mystery of our God, and it's actually the foundation of all of our hope and comfortable dependence upon Him. So that brings us to our third point this morning, confidence in God's promises. That as we said in John 10.30, Jesus is grounding his whole argument, his whole promise, his whole claim in these six words, I and the Father are one. And so we can say that what Jesus is doing here is grounding and 
giving the confidence for God's people in the fact that our God is one. Our God is one. There are not three gods, there are not three wills in God that are contradicting each other and conflicting with one another. That the Trinity is not this society of persons that when they get together, they make up one God. What Jesus is claiming is that there is one infinite and eternal God who is simply Father, beginning Son, together breathing forth the Spirit. That God is one in his essence and being, and this is the only reason that we can have confidence in God's promises. This is the only reason that we can have confidence in God's promises. Because if all this passage meant was that the Father and the Son are one in purpose, what happens if the Son changes his mind? What happens if the Father changes his mind? If they have different wills, in theory, they could change their will. What if the Son had a will that was separate from the Father? We would have no hope. We would be lost. We would be we would perish because if God could change his mind, if the Father could go against the will of the Son, like there's these multiple wills in God, then our hope would be lost. But as we see, our confidence is founded on the unified, sorry, our confidence is not only founded on the unified purpose of God, but on the very essence of our triune God, who does not change. What did we read in Malachi 3, 6? He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. That's why the people can have confidence, and that's why you and I can have confidence this morning that the promises of Christ here, that none is able to snatch them out of his hand, are as sure as the existence of our unchanging God. He said it, that settles it. Our God is one in being in essence, three in person, he does not change. His promises are sure, and that is the foundation of our hope this morning. That God is good. He will accomplish all his purposes. What do we sing in, in the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. <laughs> right? That's our confidence this morning. He will call his sheep. He will save, redeem, justify, sanctify them. He will keep them and preserve them to the end, and he will glorify them. And so as we walk away from this passage this morning and we seek to try to apply these, these truths to our souls, three things to look at this morning. The first is very much related to what we've just said. The first thing that we can see this morning is we can trust the promises of God. We can trust the promises of God. That the reason that our Lord grounds this statement in his very essence is so we can have confidence, right? What does Hebrews say? That God swore by himself. Because there was no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself that his promises are sure. That even though we will be tempted to doubt God and his word, right? How often have you and I struggled with sin in our lives? And we look to the promises, like John 10, that says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hands. How often are we tempted to doubt that promise, right? When we're in the depths of our sin, when the darkness seems all around us, it is easy for us to think, there's no way this could be true. There's no way that God could really preserve me and keep me to the 
or tempted to doubt God and to doubt his word, right? This is the first lie told in the Bible. Satan, Satan comes to Eve and says, did God really say? And how often are we tempted to think that in our own minds when we're struggling? Did God really say that no one is able to snatch them out of my hands? And the answer is yes. God really said that. And he means it. And he will do it. We saw that last week. So we can look to the triune God who swears by himself and will not change. The second thing that we should see this morning is the importance of creeds and confessions in the local church. That there's, a, there's kind of a two common thoughts in our day. One is that creeds and confessions are bad. That we should have no creed but Christ, right? That these creeds are man-made, that they sort of corrupt the pure doctrine of the Bible, and so we need to get rid of all of them, right? Oh, no creed but Christ. We can only believe what the Bible says. We can't use other words to describe what the Bible teaches, and this is a rejection of the historic creeds of the faith. And we don't we don't want to do that because then we're having to reject all the history of the church and all of the rejection of the error that was in the church. And so it's, it's essential that we look to the creeds for sound doctrine and what the church has always believed and confessed. But the second thing that we can do and fall into is to simply just recite the creed and the confession. To simply go through the motions of saying, yep, we believe one God, three persons, blessed Trinity, but not understand what we're saying, not know what we mean. And this is the other and opposite error. And so this morning, as a confessional church, our call is to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, to teach sound doctrine, to refute error, right? This is what we are called to do as a church. And so it's essential that we not only confess these great truths, but that we seek to understand them and hold fast to them. And I think we'll find that as we do that, it actually strengthens our confidence in God and in his word and his ability to work throughout history to preserve his truth. And finally this morning, as we walk away, we can see that this great doctrine of the Trinity, far from um, just being a doctrine that we keep on the shelf of our minds, is actually something that should help strengthen our worship of God and cause us to glorify our triune God. That our God, we confess, is infinite and incomprehensible. What does that mean? He cannot be comprehended. <laughs> and so, when we look at this great truth that our God is one and three and three and one, and if you're thinking to yourself this morning, I still don't know what that means. I still don't comprehend that. The answer is, that's a good thing. Because <laughs> you cannot comprehend who God is. He is infinite. He is incomprehensible. He cannot be comprehended by anyone but himself. And so what that should cause from his people is not this sort of flippant, like, okay, I'm not going to care about it. It should actually cause us to worship and glorify our God who we cannot comprehend. And so I was reminded by something one pastor said. He said, even though we cannot comprehend God, we can still confess him and adore him for who he is. And another thing we can say, as one uh, reform theologian said, Stephen Charnock, he said, 
Though we cannot comprehend God as he is, yet we must not fancy God to be what he is not. We must understand God rightly. That doesn't mean we can comprehend him fully, but we must seek to understand God rightly as he has revealed himself in the scripture. So as we walk away, we might not understand all of what this means. We might not be able to comprehend all that God is, but we can confess one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal, co-equal, co-eternal, and we can adore our God. Because he has not only created us and not only sustains us, but he has saved us, his people, and he will glorify us on the last day. So let's praise him and thank him for his grace. Lord, we come before you as your people, as your flock. And we come, Lord, um, humbly with our finite minds that cannot comprehend the infinite. And so this morning, Lord, as we've talked about much deep and profound things from your word, we pray that um, ultimately, more than anything, we would worship and adore you for who you are. We would glorify your matchless name, that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Without equal, there is no God come for you, neither shall there be after. That you are one God in three persons. And so we can worship and adore you. And as our confession says, this is the foundation of all of our hope and comfortable dependence upon you. That apart from the triune God, there is no hope for sinners. So this morning we come resting on your grace, we come looking to Christ, the one who in the fullness of time took on flesh, died the death that we deserve, lived the life we could not live, so that we might be reconciled to you and might have communion with you, the God of the universe. So we pray this morning that you would strengthen us by your spirit, you would cause us to walk in all your ways, and that you would help us to rest on the truths of your word this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Thank you.